Civil and environmental engineering faculty member Andrew Jones is interested in a lot of different stuff. Bacteria and how they form biofilms, developing new techniques to breach the barriers of these biofilms, how these bacterial communities can impact human health, the future of the grid, and the environmental justice issues involved with that future. Buckle up and get ready to meet Andrew Jones on this episode of Rate of Change, a podcast from Duke University dedicated to the ingenious ways that engineers are solving society's toughest problems. Hope you've had your coffee today so you can keep up. We're going to start with Andrew telling us about growing up here in Durham while his dad was a grad student at Duke. Tell us that. The Hilton that, the, that we normally put faculty up in off of Main Street used to be a giant open field. And that's actually where I learned how to ride a bike and fly a kite because Duke lovingly has all these trees right around the main quad, which means that as far as flying kites go, it's kind of out. Um, riding a bike, actually, I think I might've ridden a bike there. Oh, and I also have a really good memory of climbing a magnolia that still exists over in the Sarah P. Duke Gardens. Um, I know the exact one you're yes. talking about. <laughs> yeah, magnolias are the best climbing trees. They are, they have low nice low swoops. branches and yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you said your family farmed here, right? My mom's entire family, um, they were from, I guess, about an hour north of here, Caswell County. Um, my grandfather had a fairly large farm. My aunts, or all my great aunts who descended from him had small farms or large farms, depending. Uh, my mother, even though she was born and raised mostly in Cleveland, she would spend her summers down here picking tobacco. Um, <laughs> she claims that she even got a small nicotine addiction and that's where it started. Um, she's since given up cigarettes, but um, like that's where it kind of started was picking and handling tobacco. And um, if I want to tie that into the research that I do now, one of my students was very curious about like, okay, nicotine's relationship to antibiotic resistance and relation to, um, because they're, they're oils on tobacco leaves. And so you have the oils coming off the tobacco leaf, you have the pesticides and herbicides or pesticides we spray on tobacco leaves and how that might influence the skin microbiome. And that's one of the projects that we're looking at right now is just looking at how the skin microbiome just hangs around on our on our skin in a in vitro situation. So instead of having to do a mouse model or a pig model, we have 3D printed skin and we're looking at like three different bacteria that we know exist on the skin and how they interact, how they will relate to each other and how this differs from when we look at the same bacteria on the standard agar plate model, which is what everybody uses. They basically take um, gelatin and they make a, make an agar plate and that's how they grow bacteria. And that's not, um, that's not really representative of the way our skin works, right? Like our skin is not as wet as agar, right? It's, Hopefully. it's, it's pretty dry. Um, it is, more porous than agar, right? That's how we have, we have pores on our skin. We have higher temperatures. We have more oil on our skin than agar does. So just looking at how bacteria will differ between that platform and like the agar platform and these 3D printed skin that we are able to produce is gonna hopefully open up some new doors for studying the more advanced stuff like how nicotine and other oils from tobacco leaves might affect a, your skin microbiome and then affect your health down the line or how um, pesticides and herbicides might affect your skin microbiome, which will eventually affect the rest of your health down the road. I have so many questions about this. Um, <laughs> what are you 3D printing the skin from? 
Uh, so a combination of like different gelatins and different cells. So we can actually use epithelial cells and epithelial tissue um, to print um, structures. So that was kind of, that's, it's a really recent innovation. Um, not, we didn't do it in our lab. Um, right now, the most interesting structure we have is, well, a 3D coupon of skin. So like a cube, basically. Mm-hmm. But it has more porosity than agar. As I said, it has um, the ability to have cells growing inside of it. It's multiple components. So we have different gels that we're actually embedding these cells inside. So there's a little bit of different stress and strain because if you look at our tissue, like our tissue is not one uniform homogenous tissue. Yeah, I'm just kind of trying to imagine what that process would look like. You know, a 3D printer like squirting out kind of. It's squirting out a combination of cells and inks. It literally is a, it's like a syringe. Like you're either your pastry syringe or the syringes that you get vaccines out of. Um, It exists, it applies pressure and squirts it out. But it squirts it out at a nice slow enough rate and occasionally with a UV light so that we can I guess, solidify or cross-link the material so that it's more of a solid than a liquid. Mm-hmm. Um, that is wild. Yeah. I, I guess I don't think about the microbiome, you know, on skin, although I, I know that it is there. I think we usually think about the microbiome being like in your guts or, you know, inside of other really wet kind of things. Is Are there other, you know, places around us that... Um, kind of host these microbiomes that people might be surprised by? Everything has a microbiome. (laughs) It's like I, yes, like so um, on a project with uh, Claudia Gunch, uh, Duke University just got the, uh, the, what is it, an engineering research center funded. Premier. Yeah. Andrew is referring to the engineering research center for precision microbiome engineering, Premier. This center is aiming to develop diagnostic tools and different approaches that prevent the colonization of harmful bacteria in the built environment and encourage beneficial microorganisms to thrive. Premier is led by Duke CEE Professor Claudia Gunch, and it's supported by a $26 million grant from the NSF. Andrew is one of many researchers from multiple institutions collaborating on this new center. And that is entirely designed to study the building microbiome, right? It's when we think about the spread of COVID on an indoor environment, um, that part of that thinking is, well, that is an indoor microbiome, right? That's a combination of us walking into a room, exhaling whatever we have in our mouths and our lungs and spitting that out into a room that will stick to a surface. I mean, we originally thought about COVID, I think in the early days that we were like, everybody was wiping down their surfaces, right? Because the thought was what well, maybe COVID was spread through surface contact. Turns out it wasn't. Um, if we really think back to where, how human evolution worked or evolution worked, bacteria were first. They've been here for millennia. Um, and so they know how to colonize basically any environment, dry, wet, hot, acidic, volcanic. Um, they are, they are everywhere. The biggest challenge with like the bacterial side of the microbiome is that we can't culture most of those bacteria. We don't know what what things make them happy to grow them in large quantities that we can see them under a microscope. However, they're there. The recent in- innovations have been that we can use like 16S RNA-seq, which is a way of just amplifying a chunk of DNA and being able to amplify it enough so that we can see at least what DNA was there. And that's allowed us to start seeing certain things. 
I mean, the biggest challenge, though, is really just growing those microbes in a controlled, repeatable environment the way that we like to do science. It's like, well, that's that's harder because um, if we're thinking trying to grow the bacteria inside the sound booth, right? It's like, well, what makes them happy to grow? Is it the styrofoam that makes them happy? Uh, we don't know. And we have to just keep tossing things at it and trying to figure out what works. Um, so that, that's kind of the big challenge, but also the big opportunity is that we have new tools, new technologies like the 3D bioprinter, where we can start saying, well, what's going to make this bacteria happy? Um, one of the cool findings that we found so far with just the 3D bioprinter is that Propidium bacter acnes, also known as Cutibacterium acnes, also known as the bacteria that causes acne, um, like that bacteria likes growing on our 3D printed skin constructs a lot better than it grows on agar. One of the other fascinating studies that happened that I was talking about when the Premier grant was going through review was, I think it was a 2019 study where somebody went around and sampled hospitals and just like clipboards, uh, the paper in a hospital, the different surfaces of a hospital, and then they just took those samples, put them under a SEM, so a scanning electron micrograph, which allows you to get like micron level um, images, mm -hmm. and, and they're normally in black and white, but they were able to find biofilms on those surfaces. If we think about a biofilm, you're thinking about like the plaque on your teeth, you're thinking about like the really colorful ponds and Yellowstone, right? Those are, those are biofilms you think about, like the slime on rocks. And yet they were finding these on paper, right? On clipboards, on ink pens. And I was like, well, those are, that's interesting to see that same morphology, right? Something that looks basically like a biofilm, but on something that is dry. Is, is learning how those biofilms work um, to be able to better break them down? Is that the... I wouldn't say break them down. I'd say live with them, right? Okay. Like that that's the, I guess, another fascinating direction that research has started to take. I think there was a really cool paper in 2017 that started talking about like a way to defeat this antimicrobial resistance crisis is to kind of scale back on anti like antimicrobials. So not taking antibiotic to kill off bacteria, right? We don't necessarily need to like kill them off because once we kill them, then you start doing the natural selection thing, which starts leading to things that are resistant. Right. Uh, so if instead you could figure out a way to decrease their virulence. Right. So instead of worrying about how well or instead of worrying about just their existence in our body. Right. Because we have bacteria on our skin. Right. We have bacteria in our gut that are that we're totally fine with. Why is it a problem? It's a problem because it starts shifting things over to a dysbiosis. It starts dominating the other species. And so if we could figure out a way of just saying, you know what, what if we were to add this other thing, this other element to it, to make it kind of go back to its normal contained happy state. What kind of dysbiosis can happen in water treatment and delivery? That is an interesting question that is kind of the, I guess it might even be at like the forefront of Premier. So the NSF Premier Center that was talked about earlier, right? Like looking and trying to figure out, okay, we have, we know what dysbiosis looks like in a human. Right, which is again that that's a decent chunk of what my lab studies is dysbiosis in human populations, um, but dysbiosis in a building or in a water treatment plant—that's kind of an open question that we're trying to probe a lot more, both in my lab and in the NSF Premier Center at large. Um, how can we make sure to modify the or to could we could we even engineer that community to be uh, 
the community of bacteria that we want or the community of bacteria that will do no harm or do the least harm, right? Right now, we don't know if, even if we can engineer that community. Um, and we don't know how the community kind of arises in the first place. There's a lot of study that needs to go on to figure out how that community popped up there and how it's so stable. Right now, there's not been a lot of like waterborne illnesses that we, that have been, I guess, that we're aware of that are publicized. So our water treatment system is working really well right now. Um, but could we do better? Right. Could we do better through engineering tools, through engineering practices so that we can kind of live with a little bit more low cost solutions to drinking water treatment um, and also protect our most vulnerable populations? Because even though for the most part, those bacteria are probably benign for most people, um, that there may be populations that are somewhat immunocompromised that may not be able to deal with that level of bacteria in their drinking water. And right now they're probably having to pay out of pocket for their own filters to get water that meets a standard that can protect their health. Could we potentially design a system that will help them as well? My vision for the future, both kind of the future of my lab, but also kind of the future of society is one, my lab is really positioned as a as a lab that develops tools for this water smart grid concept that we are proposing and kind of latching ourselves onto. Um, and what that means for people on, the, on a day-to-day -day basis is just a lot more trust in your water and a lot more knowledge about your water. Right now, water, water quality, water information, it is literally all buried, um, right? It is all underground. You get a water report once a year. You may not even know that you get a water quality report mandated by law, mandated by the Clean Water Act. You're supposed to get this report from your water utility that says what's in your water once a year. Right now, it's really hard to care about what's coming up from underground that you don't see every day, right? It's hard to care about things that you don't see. With the Water Smart Grid, I hope that people are gonna be able to see water and see their water quality better and be able to trust their water quality. And if they don't trust it, to be able to act with information to improve their water quality system, just like we can do with roads, right? What would you expect living with a, a smart grid, you know, a more equitable, accessible smart grid system to, to look like for just a normal person? Yeah, so for a consumer, you would turn on your tap and hopefully water would flow just like normal. You wouldn't notice what's kind of going on under the ground the same way that you kind of don't notice right now, except you would have to display, right? And that display would tell you things that might make you trust your water better, right? It might say, you're using this much water, then your neighbors are potentially using this much water, that you all have this much water left in whatever reservoir you're drawing from, whether it's something that's your community basin or your city's reservoir or your town's, like, whatever your county's reservoir. So you'd be drawing and you'd say, okay, I'm subtracting this much from these sources. You might be able to see, click and click a screen that might display more information and say, okay, projected out based off of our current rainfall levels and snowfall levels that, yeah, you'll have enough water like in this storage tank to last you for the next year, two years. Um, and that it might show an alarm saying, hey, are you actually using this water right now? Or are you just kind of letting it run, right? It will tell you things about the quality of your water, the pressure of your water. So being able to see that, yeah, your water pressure is fine, that there's no leaks in the system. That, And it could also say before you turn on the tap, it's like, hey, you've been using water throughout the day, right? An app on your phone maybe will say, you're using water. And you're like, there's no faucet running in my house right now. I haven't turned on anything. And that can that can point you to a leak, right? That can say, you should probably go fix this, um, right? Just based off of that water usage. We have that technology right now. We have the, the leak detection, but it's the rest of it, right? The, okay, your water is free from arsenic. It's free from lead. It's free from bacteria. Or maybe there is bacteria in your water. You might want to do something about that. 
you turn it on your tab and you might get more information that you could deal with, but hopefully the displays, as we design and iterate, we would get to the point where we could display information that's relevant at the time of use. See how much water the Joneses are using on their grass this time of year. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, it's like, and see, and see how that might impact the rest of, for the rest of the system. And so if we're trying to push these technologies out, uh, we have to consider potentially policy interventions and policy solutions and try to figure out how policies worked in the past to improve overall health. Um, so one lovely example is a catalytic converter was originally put out in the 19, I want to say the late 1970s, early 1980s, and that was a go through government mandate, um, and that immediately improved air quality for everyone. Then car companies realized, okay, we can get more efficient, we can get more efficient engines, longer lasting. So they decided to do it themselves later on, and so assume market forces that later improved um, that implementation of that technology. So I try to blend in a little bit of policy work with the engineering work that I do to make sure that when I develop these new technologies, that they actually will get out there and help people get access to this, these tools to improve either their building's health or the neighborhood's health or the broader community's health. So that's how the policy piece is kind of in my research. It's like there's technology and there's policy and how do those two things meet and interact. Keep your eyes on Andrew Jones and his lab here at Duke. There's sure to be many, many interesting things coming out of it in the future. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe for more updates from Duke Engineering. And if you learned something from this podcast, please share it with others.